Years ago, I started listening, reading, and learning the wisdom shared by a Navy SEAL, a top elite military personnel from the USA. I was amazed at how integrated this person had his top physical side with his emotional, mental, and spiritual side, and how he was merging Western and Eastern philosophies of life and teaching in an easy-to-understand way. His name is Mark Divine, and if you don't know him yet, I can tell you this, besides being a retired commander, accomplished entrepreneur, highly sought-after speaker, coach, best-selling author, and a fellow podcaster, he's an amazing, humble, giving, generous, caring human being who has a vibration that will lift you. At least that is what I felt in our time together, and my hope is that you feel that too. I don't take for granted this beautiful opportunity to have in front of me someone I look up to and have a conversation where what he shares, I can feel it comes from experience and going deep into things that I believe are very important. Mark Divine starts explaining in this episode that the human mind has unlimited potential and we are taught that it's limited and at the same time no one teaches us how to learn and grow. With him, some points that we talk about are the trap of our own culture. What does freedom look like? Why do people get stuck? We talk about femininity and masculinity and the importance of integrating both sides. What is a warrior path? And it is not about perpetrating more violence and it's not limited to the military. We talk about love and the different forms and expressions it can have. We talk about the vertical evolution we should all strive for. What catapulted him to start to make radical shifts in his perception of the world? What is meditation and what is the first stage of a good meditation practice? And why is it so important to habituate and discipline meditation in your life and the benefits of it? He explains what for him is winning in your mind, which helps you conquer anything. We talk about the practice of letting go, non-attachment, and the difference with detachment, which is not the same thing and is not useful for the world. We talk about the growth path and what that means. What is the way to attain true freedom? The power of the present moment. The tool that can help you think better, start to lose weight, start to sleep better, and get more control of your attention and focus. We talk about the six pillars to get in balance. What he calls the big four skills. The quickest way to integration. The three aspects of reality. What you need to do if you want to create a better world and see the world change. As you can see, this episode is packed with a lot of wisdom. And he leaves us with a lot of hope, saying that although we're traversing some hard times, and it will last for some years according to him, it will be 10 times better after this period. So buckle up, but stay positive and hopeful. And I don't take his time or your time for that matter lightly. So I'm very thankful for his generosity in sharing his experiences and wisdom and for your attention and time, which I hope gets enriched after listening to this full episode and this podcast. So without further ado, let's get started. Have you ever wondered what makes people capable of creating changes that impact their lives and the world around them? What is their way of thinking, their mentality, their patterns, their perceptions of the world, their reactions to different life events? What influences them? My name is Cristina Puyol, and I invite you to join me in this adventure where we will explore together the mind of change makers. Today, I'm thrilled to have an amazing guest. He's an accomplished entrepreneur, highly sought after speaker, coach, and best-selling author. He took a very unique approach to his career and life, getting a degree in economics and an MBA in finance, working as a certified public accountant in a major company in New York City, to then becoming an elite Navy SEAL, where he graduated with honors of his SEAL BATS class number 
170. Mark served for nine years total on active duty and 11 as a reserve SEAL, retiring as a commander in 2011. He's also a successful entrepreneur, co-founding a Coronel Brewing company that later he sold. He launched US Tactical, a government contracting business, where he gained contracts for a nationwide mentoring program for SEAL trainees. He has also created life acceleration programs like Unbeatable Mind, functional fitness programs like SealFeed, integrated yoga systems like Kokoro Yoga, both online and live. He has his own coaching certification training, hundreds of thousands of people around the globe at the highest level, teaching the inner secrets of Navy SEAL mental toughness and how to develop a warrior offensive mindset. He also has under his belt two black belts, in Seido and Goju Ryo Karate, a military hand-on-hand -hand combat certification in SCARS, a senior ranking in Saido Nijutsu. He's also certified Ashtanga, Ashtanga yoga teacher, also an insightful interviewer on his podcast, The Mark Divine Show. And he has also created the Courage Foundation, founded to holistically help veterans heal themselves holistically and restore a sense of purpose, hope, and connection. And the list goes on, but I'm going to stop here to welcome my guest, Mark Divine. Hi, Mark. Hi, man. Thank you so much for that. Wow. Sounds You've like a lot. Busy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Awesome. I, I, I was reading your curriculum and actually after following you, said, how do you do so many things? It's like you've <laughs> lived 10 lives together. True, true. But, you know, um, I learned from my first martial arts grandmaster. He had a great saying. It was one day, one lifetime. And this had kind of a dual meaning. One was, you know, as a warrior, and this is true actually for anybody, is um, today is all you got. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, it might be your last, so make it count. And the other meaning is that when you get radically focused and you're doing what you love, then you can accomplish a lifetime in a single day. Yeah. And you can have a lifetime of learning in a single day. So I've lived by that for since, um, since I started training with him when I was 21. And he taught me um, mental you know, development, mental control, and how to uh, you know, really create the type of freedom that we all strive for which happens in the mind you know that's one quote that i read in one of your books and it really it really touched me also because you said you don't you don't treat every day like a dress rehearsal and right. i thought that was a powerful quote also because i feel some some of us have not even chosen the dress you know <laughs> for, right. for that rehearsal so so why do people get stuck? You know, why do people get so stuck in, in you know, I want to do these and, and never progress? What's your experience? You know, there's the there's a lot of little reasons that we could talk about, but I think there's a main reason. The main reason is that there is a giant global, you know, mental training program, right? It's called culture. And that culture is driven by whoever, you know, is, in, is basically in charge of the media and the programming and the news and, and what, you know, what you buy. And so you are taught from, and your parents, you know, are fully baked into this as well. And so it's mental training. When you're born, your, your brain and your mind is really only shaped by karmic energy or, or, or trace, um, mental imagery or mental patterns, you know, that you might, and this is my belief system that you brought into this life, right? But for the most part, you kind of are left with a blank slate, a tabula rasa or an unformed, you know, piece of clay, if you will. And, and immediately your parents and culture go to work to shape that clay in a way that works, you know, to fit their mold, their ideas and their expectations. And um, in, in no way does that programming, that conditioning, that training lead you to freedom or to, you know, to the fulfillment of what you're here on this planet to do. It's, it's actually designed to, you know, to fit you into a little box that's going to be useful <laughs> for somebody. And so because of that, um, we tend to you know, believe the stories because it's very strong. We tend to believe the identities and the stories that are built up around that. 
and we don't recognize that they limit us and they trap us. And so, you know, in that saying, ignorance is bliss, it truly is bliss. It's like, you, you know, you've taken the blue pill and um, the way out is the red pill. The red pill, you know, with a nod toward the matrix is essentially um, waking up to this realization that, you know, your entire life story has been one of conditioning and that now you have to deconstruct it and reconstruct a new um, mind, a new mental uh, set of uh, models and patterns and beliefs and behaviors that are going to serve you and lead you to freedom. And lead you, and that freedom feels like complete peace of mind. It feels like an open heart full of compassion for all beings. It feels like contentment in, in the sense that you have no regrets. Um, every day is awesome spontaneous, playful, joyful, and if it's your last, so be it. It's okay, right? So that was a long-winded answer. The kind of meta problem is that people have allowed others to train their mind to serve their needs as a consumer, as a government, you know, citizen, as a, you know, basically a controlled entity. And the most free human beings have recognized this, they've woken up to this, and they train themselves for freedom to, to give up all those um, attachments and needy, neediness of other people and victimization and you know, anything that really is limiting the individual. The human being and the human mind has unlimited potential. It's extraordinary. And yet we're not taught that. That's part of the mental training. We're taught that we're limited and, and um, we're also not taught how to learn and grow. We're just, you know, get a bunch of information stuffed in our heads, which is really largely useless by the time we get out of college or high school or whatever, you know, level. And so all of that is by design as well, right? Because, you know, can you imagine what this world would be like with seven and a half billion free people fully, ex <laughs> fully expressing their creativity and their joy and their bliss and their connection? You know, we, oh, wouldn't need, we wouldn't need government, we wouldn't need banks, we wouldn't need, you know, exactly. all the structures that, that have been built to, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't need religion. We wouldn't yeah. need any of that because we'd experience the wholeness of life in its totality, moment to moment, and all our needs would be met. I went waxed philosophical right off the bat. Sorry about that. No, it's great. It's great. You know, actually, that's one of the things that I was impressed by you because we have this image you know I'm from Spain I am in Spain right now um, lived in the U.S. for some years and we have this image of the military like being these tough guys you know that have these mm. kind of like square brain I don't know why we, I have that I love that square brain <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes and the jarhead the square head and there are a lot of those folks you know but. so you break that pattern for me like having these amazing spiritual you know mind and uh and that that yeah. that brought another sense to me like wow you can really have you know these worlds and and then you also had you know you study and you were entrepreneurs like wow you can have all these dimensions all in one and it's not incompatible and it's possible and i think yeah. it's beautiful to see like in in because we have the idea that tough man i will see you as a tough man you know I don't have a soft side and it's beautiful to see a man that has that so that other men can learn that right, and women right. too, you know, so. Right. Well, a whole person, let's say a whole man has fully developed themselves to embody and embrace the femininity or the yin, right? And so they live in both being, beingness and action, right? Being and doing. And then same thing, a whole woman has embraced their masculinity, their action side. And, um, culture has distorted both of those and continues to do that. And so it takes a little bit of work. It takes courage to, you know, develop. And I actually, it was the SEAL teams that allowed me to really do the emotional development, you know, because when you're relying on another individual for your life and you're willing to lay down your life for them, you know, that's a, that's a level of love that, you know, is uncommon in culture, right? That, and, and, so you would get to experience what the ancient, you know, Greeks knew or the ancient samurai knew is that there's many, many forms of love. It, it expresses itself literally in an infinitude of ways, in an infinite number of ways. 
And yet, you know, especially in Western culture, we, we really conflate it to just male-female relations, usually which, you know, lack love. So what I learned also is that the warrior path is an integrated path, right? And so if, if you're not on an integrated path, then you're really just in it for the job or because you are angry and a violent human being and you, and you use the military as cover to go perpetrate more violence. And you see that a lot too. But less and less, very little of that in the elite units, right? Because elite units attract men and women like me who are committed to service and growth. And so you go through certain stages as a warrior as you're committed to growth. You go through the physical mastery of learning, you know, developing the body and the mind that can become, or physical mental mastery, I should say. You know, like what I needed to do as a martial artist, as an athlete, and a meditator to ensure that I could become a Navy SEAL and the best Navy SEAL that, that I could possibly be and the best leader. So there's that physical and mental development, but then there's the emotional development, like I was talking about a moment ago, you know, when, when we got done with the mission and my team stared at me and said, Mark, you know, you totally screwed that up. You know, you almost got us killed, right? And the first few times hearing that, I, I took it very personally and it was emotionally really hard, but the reality was they did it because they loved me and they loved the team and they realized that, you know, I have to grow in order for me to stay on that team. Otherwise, I wouldn't be suitable for the team. And so there's a lot of emotional growth. So the warrior readily and, and ultimately eagerly accepts the painful emotional development that accrues from taking a look at your childhood trauma and overcoming your addictions and your shadows. And then because the work is so intense and you spend so much time in silence, you know, underwater, in the air, you know, in a hide site, in training, and you get very, very self-aware and self-reflective, well, that internal awareness is like meditation. It's a path of meditation, and it leads you to developing great intuition. And so you begin to pay attention to the signals of your heart and your biome and your, the insights that, that we call direct perception, knowing without knowing why you know something or how you know something. And so then all that plus uh, opens you up, right? So it opens you up opens your heart, opens you to the whole somatic experience, and you begin to have this experience that your, your mind is your body, they are the same, right? And you stop segmenting body over here, mind over here. You stop looking at the mind as just a experience of a brain having chemical, neurochemical reactions. You experience that something is much vaster than that, independent of body, but also requiring the body to, to move and to make meaning and to accomplish your mission in the world, which then leads you to these great uh, mystical slash experiences, which give you a spiritual center. You, you literally begin to become a spiritual warrior as you develop your wholeness or your integration on this path, which then Cause you to begin to deconstruct a lot of the stories that you were taught about that, about man's relationship to God. And, you know, um, depending upon your religion, the different stories and, and myths that you're told and you're, and, and so you're able to kind of like compare, like what's my experience compared to that. And some of it lines up and some of it really does not. And so you become a very, very uh, thoughtful and wise individual. So that's the integrated path and the warrior path is challenging but it's probably about as challenging as is the mother's path, right? You know, because I can think of anything more challenging than to be a mother while on a spiritual growth trajectory, right? Someone who's deeply committed to their growth. Because, wow, you know what I mean? A mother is another individual who, and fathers as well, but certainly the motherly instinct is, is powerful, that, you know, who would literally lay down their life in an instant to protect their child, just like a warrior would lay down, an elite warrior will lay down their life to protect or to save a teammate. So the warrior path isn't limited to people in the military. It's anyone who really is all in on their growth and all in on service in alignment with what they're meant to be doing on this planet. And they, and they take great pains to discover what that is. You know, what the Buddhists would call your dharma or your calling. For the mother, it might just be to be the best mother possible, right? Or for the seal, it might be to just be the best seal. For me, it was to be initially a warrior and a leader, and then a teacher. And so that's what I'm doing now, trying to teach the best I can. I think this interview is going to go all over the place. 
because I was going to start with your story, but actually, this is great. And, and I think one of the questions I have is, why did you choose to be, you know, a Navy SEAL? What, what yeah. brought you there? And I know you tell this in your story, but it's, it's a huge jump from being CPA to... Sure. <clears throat> well, it, it has to do with that first mentor, the, the martial artist, Grandmaster Nakamura, who was the founder of Sado Karate. So, you know, I grew up in a pretty small town in upstate New York. Go ahead. I have yeah. to tell you this. You know, we were in a trip in Thailand and we met this guy who was a military and then somehow your name pop up and then Nakamura pop up. Yeah, I used to train with him. This guy was telling me really? I was in New York. Yes, training with Nakamura. I'm like, really? It's like Mark Divine always talks about him and it was hilarious. So I don't know. Oh, that's we really to... cool. <laughs> it was oh, really funny. That. Yeah, well, yeah. he is a great mentor. My first mentor, you know, so I grew up, my father loved the guy. He's, you know, he was a little challenged. You know, he did not, he was not committed to growth. And, you know, he had generations of abuse and alcohol that he was grappling with that, you know, led to some suboptimal family dynamics. Let's just believe it at that. And I grew up in a tiny little village in upstate New York. And so I was pretty insulated. Now, the college I went to, Colgate University, is an excellent, you know, American institution. And um, so my, I'd started to grow there, but then I did an international trip where I went to England, you know, Europe, England and Europe for six months. That was, you know, as a 16 year old kid, that was really, really expansive. Began to make, give me more confidence. That led me to the confidence <laughs> to um, pursue a career along the lines of what some of my peers were at Colgate, which was, you know, down in Manhattan with the white collar, really professional firms. Because prior to that, you know, I was kind of on this path to go back to the family business, which wasn't a bad path. You know, the family business is over 100 years old and employed like 400 people. And it, it could very easily provide a great lifestyle for, you know, the whole family. And my three siblings are all back there still working it. At any rate, so when we were graduating Colgate, you know, this opportunity came up for me to, I got hired basically by Coopers and Librand. And they are now PricewaterhouseCoopers, and it was part of a comprehensive program with about six other of firms like this who wanted to hire liberal arts graduates and send them to NYU to get a master's in accounting. Then they would sit for the CPA exam, and the idea was that over time they would be better rounded um, consultants or accountants and make better rounded uh, you know leaders or or partners. And ironically, it most though most of us left that program the few that stayed really went on to become exceptional leaders. In fact, my really good friend, Carmine, who was a attorney brother of mine at Colgate, was part of this program with me. And he's now global CEO of Eden Y or Ernst & Young. Wow, yeah. And so he started with me. And so it validated that program. I got my, ended up transferring into getting my MBA in finance. I got my CPA. But what happened during that time frame, I was there in the four years I was in Manhattan doing all that and everything was going swimmingly well. I met Nakamura. I was looking for, I was really deeply committed to my physical training. I mean, I was an athlete. I saw myself as a lifelong athlete, which was rare in the eighties, you know? Um, and when I got into the white collar work, that was reinforced because I saw everyone else ignoring their bodies and, and, um, you know, pasty and puffy. And I was like, that's not me. I'm never going to be that way ever, ever, ever. And, um, and so I got, I would get up every morning and, you know, do a, a five, six mile run and then some stretching. Then I would go to, you know, uh, the gym at lunch and, you know, do like what we now know is a high intensity functional workout and just coddle together. And then I had a space between when I would get off for work and they would let us, you know, they knew we, we were going to have to get down to NYU, which is at the World Trade Center by 7.30. So most people would go home and eat and change their clothes. And I was like, I've got time to train. And I f found this martial arts studio a block from my, from my apartment building. And that was Nakamura's Sado Karate. And they had a six o'clock class, white belt class. Perfect. So I started training there literally a month after getting to New York. And... Um, Within a few weeks, I noticed I stuck around on Thursday night to watch the black belt class at seven o'clock. And after the black belt class, I noticed everyone leaving, lights turning down, but about 10 people sticking around and pulling out these wooden benches. And then I saw Nakamura go over and he gave him a little um, prep. And then they all sat down, he lit a candle and they just sat in silence. And I slipped out at that point. But 
It was a Zen meditation class. So I asked him if I could join it the next time I saw him. He said, sure. I mean, everyone else is a black belt and training for a long time. There, out of hundreds and hundreds of students, like 10 or 12 people, that's all we're doing the meditation. So I started doing it as a white belt. And um, it was hard work. You know, we'd meditate for 45 minutes, then he would give a little talk, you know, like the one day, one lifetime lecture, you know, that was, came out of those Dharma talks they would give. And then I remember he compiled them into a book called One Day, One Lifetime, which I got. And it's, it's phenomenal. It's all these little Dharma talks that he gave after these, you know, he would write the, the, the Japanese kanji and then in English with a chalk on a chalkboard, you know. Mm. So you'd sit there in silence while he wrote this all out. And then he would, in his broken English, you know, describe what it would mm-hmm. be. Fall down seven times, get up eight. <laughs> Stuff like that. <laughs> awesome. Anyways, I, long story short is, or shorter, I should say, is this meditation, because I trusted him, I stuck with it, and there was a path, right? There was de- definite things that we were doing, and he would give you pointers and help you out, and, um, so I, and I trusted him, so I stuck with it. And, um, you know, within a year and a half to two years of training, and now I was like a green bell and I've been meditating every day and I started meditating in the morning along with these Thursdays, I started to experience like radical shifts in my perception, um, long flow states after my meditation sessions. And I began a journaling practice. And what happened is I started to really perceive things much more clearly. I started to perceive my thoughts as, you know, I, I, I was creating the space between my thoughts and my sense of self so that I could look at my thoughts, right? That was the first stage of a good meditation practice is to de- develop metacognition, the ability to separate from your thoughts and emotions and then to look at them and say, is that really working for me? And when I developed that metacognitive capability and, and also started to contemplate on questions like, am, am I really meant to be a CPA? Am I meant to go back to the family business? And if not, what am I meant for, right? What is my purpose? What is my, what do I believe in, right? Things that I wasn't taught to ask as a kid. And so for the first time in my life, I began to ask those types of questions. And when I did, and I would meditate on them, I would start to get the answers, not from my brain, but from somewhere else, right? And I started to get this this sensation that I was meant to be a warrior and that I was going down the wrong path because I was. And so I was being shown that by my spirit or my, you know, whatever, my soul, so to speak, or by some invisible guide. I don't know, you know, right? I, I, I don't want to claim that I know exactly where that information comes from because I don't. But I was getting information that I didn't know before and I hadn't read before and I had no business knowing, but it was coming from somewhere. And so when I started to really b- trust that, that I was meant to be a warrior, that's when I was shown the Navy SEALs. I wasn't, I wasn't groomed to be a military person. In fact, I was groomed pretty much anti-military. <laughs> My father, you know, he drove, he got drunk one night when he was in college and drove his car into the fraternity house, you know, and, you know, big, big deal back then and almost killed somebody. And, you know, he's standing in front of the judge and the judge said, you know, that's kind of messed up. So, there's a consequence. You can either A, go to jail, or B, join the army. And my dad said, I'll take B. <laughs> so, <laughs> Good choice. <laughs> so he found himself in Germany in the 11th Airborne, you know, at the end of the In Cold Germany. War. Oh, wow. In Germany, or, or kind of in the middle of the Cold War. And uh, he hated it, right? Because it was kind of, it was a disciplinary measure for him. Yeah. So for me, you know, he talked down about the military. I was going to be a business leader, and everything I was doing was perfect. So even the thought of joining the military was hard for me cognitively to reconcile with, but I kept getting this other information that was not beyond my cognitive mind telling me to do that. And that's when I, one night walking home, and I do tell this story in the way of the seal, I came across a recruiting office and I wasn't trying to, wasn't going there, but I walked by it and in the middle of the, the window, I saw this poster titled Be Someone Special, and it didn't say anything about the SEALs, but it, it was about the SEALs. And I just saw that, and I was transfixed. I was like, wow, look at that. What are those guys? You know, that's <laughs> what I want to do. So, yeah, the rest is kind of history. I mean. How old were you then? I was about 22 and a half, maybe 23 by then. Wow. Yeah. 
Really yeah, young. most people joined the military at 18. I was still 23. And in fact, I didn't go in until November of 1989. I finally, it took me a long time to get accepted. They, you know, they accepted two people that year out of the civilian world. The rest came through from the Naval Academy and, and also the Reserve Officer Training Corps, which is a, you know, the military program lined up with colleges that people do for four years. And so the SEALs might take 18 a year out of those two sources and maybe one or two from the civilian world through officer candidate school. And that's the path that I was taking. And, and um, I was very fortunate to get accepted. But I mean, there's a story behind that as well. Mm -hmm. Because I created the conditions for it to happen in my mind and it happened. And I knew it was going to happen once I had won, in, I call it winning in my mind. Once I had won in my mind, then the Navy called and said, congratulations. But I had to win in my mind first. I had to believe it. I had to see it, visualize it, practice it every single day. So that was that. You know, I, I got selected. I went to SEAL training. But it was four years. So I went to Manhattan after graduating college. I went to NYU in uh, summer of 1985. I got my MBA, my CPA, and I tested for my first degree black belt with Nakamura all in November of 1989. Wow. And, and I was... I was off to officer candidate school December 1st, left it all behind. My parents yeah. freaking out, you know, telling me <laughs> that I was just throwing my life away, that kind of thing. But it was the right thing to do. SEAL training, when I showed up for SEAL training, I felt like I had been there before. And like you said, I had 185 like hardcore individuals in my class. 19 of us graduated and I was number one honor man in my class. And my entire small team we call boat crew was gradu graduated with me because of the skills that I brought into that team and that I taught them and that we together committed to getting through the training together. So that yeah. was a, never happened before. That's proof that the system that you do works yeah. really. It yeah. works. Yeah. 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 And that's why, you know, that experience was amazing. And then I had more and more experiences as a leader like that, where I, I kept my training going and I deepened it. And, and that's what led me to like really, really want to learn everything I could. Again, this is in the 80, 90s and 2000s, well before peak performance and flow and, you know, breath control and all these things became even talked about. So I, I just went all in in learning everything I could about what was working for me so that I could kind of distill the myths and I could become, I was a study of N equals one for breath control, for visualization, for meditation, right? And, and then I wanted to teach the SEALs or special operators. And so that's what led me to starting SEAL Fit in 2006 while I was still in the Navy, but then I was a reservist. And I wanted to teach the next generation of warriors these skills because I thought they were so valuable, not just to get through training, but to be a better warrior on the battlefield, to make better decisions, and also I was experiencing more and more openness and more and more compassion and more and more a feeling of connectedness. And I wanted warriors to have that experience so that they could not lead with the bullet, but with, the, you know, with an open hand, right? Because yeah. I think that that's one of the problems is like we keep investing in violence and we get more violence. And so if the ultimate warrior knows that violence is a last resort and, um, the trained warrior doesn't lead with violence. So I think we need a whole generation of warriors. Warriors are still really important, right? Because there's evil in the world. But the warriors need to be the highest level of human being, right? Who abhor war and who are the last to, to go into war. And ultimately, we, we need our politicians to be warriors as well, to have that same level of experience. So we don't just keep perpetuating the cycles of violence really anyone at leadership positions because they're going to be leading everybody else and if you want people to lead with like you say open heart and open mind they need to be at that peak level that you're talking about absolutely yeah and you talk about meditation and i i heard you say that you don't want like to use that word because it's now used so widely that meditation means five minutes with headspace and so how, how do you define meditation? Well, meditation is a series of tools, processes to develop your mind. And that um, requires um, customization, meaning there's no, no single individual who, who is going to have the same exact path 
or set of tools that the you know it really depends upon strength of their mind, um, the health of their body, their um, where they are on their own growth trajectory, both karmically as well as in this lifetime. And so this is why meditation, when when it's conflated to just sitting and, and listening to an app, you know, or a guided visualization, then we miss it. Yeah. So there might be some health benefits. You're going to be a little calmer. But you're missing the fact that meditation is about training your mind, which means also training your body and your spirit, right? So it's a path of integration. And um, that's, and so meditation is very important for us to habituate and discipline so that you can then take back your freedom and move toward wholeness again. And then ultimately, it's something that you stop doing or you you don't need to do it sitting down on a mat or a bench you know you take it into your everyday life and it becomes a a real-time practice and then eventually the practice drops off and you attain you know what could be called awakened awareness or awareness where moment to moment to moment right you have such a level of um conscious awareness that you do no harm, you accrue no negative karma, and you are always in service, right? Always in service. And your and your mindset and attitude and heart are really open, so you end up, you know, with with compassion and and contentment, and you don't have any regrets, and you're not all about the material or the resume, right? You're all about service and and um, and helping people be more whole and helping the world heal. And, and we're seeing more and more people who are living this because I think consciousness is, is rising across the planet, right? There's a real vibrational rise and, and it's really cor- corresponding with the increase in violence, right? And this is how these things play out, right? <laughs> that kind of like that spiritual battle, if you will. And so more and more people are waking up and and doing good work to solve. I have a very, very um, abundant and optimistic view of the future because it's it's going to be healed by millions and millions of social entrepreneurs and people voting with their pocketbooks and their, with their hearts. It's not going to be solved by the United Nations doing carbon you know caps or trade, or by yeah. any other government for that matter. Right? Those institutions have failed. Yeah. And so. Um, I know I veered off on a little tangent, but um, I'll just stop there. See what happens. <laughs> yeah, I I do have one regarding um, two of the the big business successful business that you started. You had to let them go. How did you handle that? Um, not getting I don't know grudge or anger or you know. <laughs> Or not wanting to go the route again. I mean, you everything that you've done has been a successful, but then to let it go, I think that's yeah. such a powerful learning experience. And how how did you go through that? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, I had to learn that you can be proud of the structures that you create. When I say structure, like a business entity, like Coronado Brewing Company is a great example. I, I'm very proud of that, but I got into a battle because I had unskillful um, means when I partnered with my partners who were also my brothers-in-law, which was not a great idea. They weren't, we were at very different places. We didn't share the same vision, same mission, same values, and it was a recipe for disaster and it ended up being a disaster. Uh, But in order to preserve the business, instead of blowing it up or making it, you know, I wanted the business to succeed because I was very proud of it and there were investors in it. So I walked away. I literally gave it to them these two guys who didn't put a penny into the business. I put all my money into it, raised all the money, built the business. It was profitable, doing $10 million in revenue. But in order to preserve the business and to preserve the family, which was, they were blowing up the family. My wife's parents got divorced. I mean, their parents, and it was just turning into a capital S-H-I-T show. And, <laughs> and so I, I had to really, th- and I was angry, but um, I, kept on, I went back to my meditation and I kept meditating on it. And what I kept coming to was don't be attached to this. You know, you can be angry, but don't be attached to the anger. It doesn't, it's not who you are. And this business isn't who you are. Be proud of it, but move on. 
And in a lot of ways, that was very powerful because I learned that we can get trapped in the organizations that we either create or we work for. You, you can't grow beyond the level of the organization and the, and the culture. And so if you're on a growth path, you're always going to feel at, at some point constricted or contracted by the organizations until you don't want any. And I'm at that point now, like I'm in my organization, but I can't, I can't wait till the organization can stand in on its own two feet and I can just be the chief spokesperson, you know? I don't want any structure, right? It's limiting me these days. So that was powerful. So I learned there and I learned through when I got my government contracting company kind of stolen from me. So there's another lesson there too as to why this was happening. So I had to unpack pack that, right? Because my father had similar situations happen to him. So I was kind of recreating these things in my life. Um, you know, I also went back to my meditation bench. So I'm not going to fight this company called Blackwater that stole this $10 million contract. It was actually $6 million at the time. It went on to be ten. And, you know, I was going down this path to be a successful government contracting company. But I, when I sat down on the meditation bench, what became clear to me was that that was the wrong path. So these guys did me a favor. It was painful favor. It cost me a lot of money. <laughs> but it was, it was a favor. And out of that came SealFit. I never would have created SealFit, which led to all the explosion of this creativity and creating the SealFit program, the Unbeal Mind program, the Kokoro Yoga program, the Courage Fund. All of that came out of that pain whereby, you know, I had this massive opportunity stolen from me and I, I chose not to fight it or to recreate it. What I chose instead was to take the creative outlet and to, to, and to teach special operators, you know, who really wanted to learn from me as a private citizen, not as a government contract. And that led to me creating SealFit, which I created literally three months after that whole debacle. I just had to meditate on it and then the vision came to me and I wanted it to be an integration of functional fitness and martial arts and yoga at the physical level. But I also wanted to teach all the skills. By then, you know, I was working on my black belt in ninjutsu. I was a, you know, certified yoga teacher and I was deep, deep into, you know, the next stages of my own practice, which is much more integrative. And, um, and so I wanted to teach those skills. So yeah, you know, I, the whole point here is non, to practice non-attachment. It's incredible to create organizations. It's incredible to achieve things. But don't be attached to those things because it's the attachment, the grasping that leads to desire and fear, fear of loss, desire for more. And human beings live between desire and fear, right? And so when you practice and you do the self-awareness, you, you start to detach from that. And then you develop this really calm, non-attached state to any time something arises in you that formerly created a desire for more, you, you can examine it and look at it and go, oh, I feel that. That's what that is. And then you let it go until you just see it arise and then you let it go without acting on the desire or acting on the fear. And this leads you to be live more and more in the present. And in the present, there is a complete absence of fear or desire. It's what happens in the present is just spontaneous right action. The Japanese have a term for that, shibumi, effortless perfection. And so a good meditation practice will lead you to living at the razor's edge of now before the now turns into a memory where the desire or the fear kicks in. It's a beautiful way to live, and um, I'm a big proponent that anybody who wants to live an uncommon life and a life of freedom and wholeness and compassion and inclusiveness, um, self-introspective, contemplative practice, whatever you call it, meditation or not, is the only way to get there. And people who say they're too busy or too distracted are missing the point, right? They might be, but they're too busy or too distracted because their mind is untrained. They haven't trained themselves to detach from the busyness and the distraction and the, the constant shiny things that are taking your time. And our culture is, and our society is set up to give you more and more exciting things and more and more things to fear. And so you're, you know, your so cravings true. and your desires go through the roof and the things you fear go through the roof and you're yeah. constantly batted back and forth. 
And then you're just looking for the opposite until you're in this endless distracted mode, bouncing between desire and fear, and then you burn out. And you're like, why is my life shit? You know, I don't understand. And that's when you have to turn, turn within. Because you have yeah. no choice. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. I had a mother who was a little bit ahead of her time. And, and when I studied at university, I was, you know, freaking out a lot of times. And she would always tell me, meditate. I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. <laughs> She's like, yeah. yes, meditate. <laughs> so she was giving me meditation tapes and it will drive me nuts, but it, she was totally right. So she was right. Well, there's another, you know, besides the confusion about meditation and people's distractibility, a lot of people, most people, I should say, are not ready for real meditation, you know, just sitting there and, you know, the concentration training, which was Zen or mindful awareness or mindfulness, let alone any non-dual meditation. You just can't get there because your body is too agitated and too full of stress. You, you've been hyper, we're all hyper aroused in our culture because of the nonstop uh, noise, the nonstop busyness and speed, Stimulus, yeah. you know, nonstop stimulation. And so I recommend a practice that I call box breathing, which you are probably familiar with from the reading. And so what box breathing does, it's a one, two punch. It's, I call it double bear power. It serves as an arousal control as well as an attention control skill. And now are those meditative skills? Sort of, they're more preparatory skills in my mind. The arousal control through, through controlled nostril breathing, breathing slow through your nose and holding the breath after the inhale and the exhale. And we recommend a five count in, five count hold, five count out, five count hold. That massages your vagus nerve, which triggers, activates, I should say, your parasympathetic nervous system, which is rest and digest, which counteracts the constant barrage of your, your sympathetic nervous system getting triggered, which has put you into fight or flight and hyper arousal. And that creates a buildup of stress and anxiety in your life, which means your brain gets ag aggravated. And so you, you try to sit down and meditate or to focus and your brain's bouncing all over the place. And sometimes the only relief you can find is to get back on the social media or, or the TV because it feels comfortable there. And that becomes your source, which just makes it worse, right? And so we have to first do the arousal control and then paired with that when you do box breathing and you focus on the pattern and the pattern and the quality of the breathing and you train yourself to keep your mind focused on that then it doubles as an attention control and concentration practice so there's three really important skills just by activating and habituating a box breathing practice every day for 20 minutes in the morning and ideally 20 minutes in the morning 20 minutes in the evening and if that's too much start with five minutes because that, even that will have enormous benefits is that you're, you're de-stressing and, and um, getting yourself out of that hyper arousal and learning to calm yourself down and, and very real sense depressurizing from all the stress. And what that does is it calms your, it, it slows your brain waves down to allow you to, when you want to sit in meditation or, or calm down, it has the same effect as if you go and sit in nature for five days or so where it, your brain slows down to like a, a high alpha low beta state. And that means you experience a lot fewer thoughts in a normal, you know, one minute time period. And you also uh, are able to develop that metacognitive kind of posture where you're able to step away from being merged and bombarded by your, your conditioned reactionary reactions to those thoughts. And you're able to hold your attention on things. And ideally, then you start to learn what things to hold your attention on and what things to move away from. So you, you move away from the negative and the distracting things. You move toward the positive and the productive things. And you ask better questions about that. And then you're able to concentrate on those things for a long period of time. So all that comes from box breathing. And that should be, for most people, one to two years of work or longer if you're really agitated and out of shape. What you find happen when you do this is you start to think better. You start to lose weight. You start to sleep better, which leads you to better choices in your nutrition, better choices with exercise. And suddenly, everything that was causing you distress is now back in balance. And guess what? You can start your real meditation, right? Yeah. So there's a real, back to kind of I said earlier, there is a definitive process and path that is not taught in the West. I teach it on Beetle Mind. And it's really important for people to understand that there's, you know, just like in the, if you were just to go to uh, an old 
ancient martial arts studio, like in Karate Kid, right? He didn't just start teaching me karate. He said, go paint this fence or go mm -hmm. wax this car. You know, it's wax on, wax off. Wax. That was preparatory work. That was to train the mind, to calm the body, to, you know, even physical fitness. I, we have uh, the six pillars that are like essential to get in balance. And that's physical exercise and somatic movement. Those, that's one pillar. Uh, sleep and recovery. That's the second pillar. Um, fueling and nutritional quality. That's the third pillar stress management and release that's the fourth time in nature even though that fits into the stress management um, we want that to be we break that out because it's so important and uh, communities of practice is the six really important so those are all basically foundational habituation practices to get your body brain ready so that you can retrain it yeah. through the box breathing practice. But you do the box breathing practice while you're doing all this stuff. And then within a year or two, all of a sudden you find yourself, you know, optimally healthy, peak performance. And a lot of people stop there because they're doing it for peak performance or for the attainment of something. And what we teach is great, go enjoy those things. Don't be attached to them. But this is about lifelong growth, not just learning, mm -hmm. but lifelong growth. And you're, there's no there there, right? There's no destination. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Right. The journey is the whole point. Yeah, the journey is the joy. So yeah. enjoy it. Yeah. And I know when the student is ready, the teacher appears. But with all the information that is, and like you're saying, putting out about how, you know, how important it is to do breath work. Mm -hmm. I still have like people very close to me, very high achievers in very stressful situations, and they live with high levels of anxiety and i tell them about this and they don't you know it comes one year goes out the other mm -hmm. how do you how do you approach and i know the student has to be ready but how do you approach mm -hmm. um the people that resist to do these simple very yeah. helpful well, things if, if i have the ability to talk to them to be with them to coach them then i do it through direct experience right they have to experience the power of box breathing you know, in my companies, we box breathe before every meeting and, and we teach that to our clients. In my coaching clients, we box breathe before every session. In our events, we box breathe before every evolution. And, um, and, and also we, we simplify everything, right? Because people can get overwhelmed. And yeah. so like we've simplified a vast array of skills into what we call the big four skills, which are breath control, uh, positive dialogue or mental management, you know, depending on how you want to look at that. Visualization and and task um, task focusing, right? Micro goals and and the ability to to focus on the right task at the right time and to know why you're doing it. So those four skills, I could teach, you know, a year long training program on each of them, but we break it down and I call it taking the foo out of the kung fu. And I learned this with the <laughs> seal, the seal candidates. You know, an eighteen or twenty year old seal candidate, you know, doesn't want to learn pranayama from yoga, right? Or Kung Fu, you know, they want to know what tool, what skill do I need to master training and to be an effective warrior on the battlefield? So I had to take all the things that I was drawing from the Eastern traditions of meditation and, and visualization and, um, you know, the, the eight limbs of yoga, as well as all the martial arts stuff that I learned. And I had to like distill those into usable bits and bytes and deliver them as um, drills and skills that, you know, that were, were devoid of the cultural trappings, right? Because, you know, no Navy SEAL wants to be sitting in a robe with a, you know, with an ashram kind of feeling trying to learn yeah. Sanskrit, you know, they, yeah. they want to learn how to kick, kick ass and take names as a Navy SEAL, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I think that's true for all Westerners, you know, it's like most people aren't interested in you know, the monk life or yeah, the monk like of, life uh, or the languaging and the, the spiritual trappings of, you know, a lot of systems of yoga or Buddhist meditation or whatever. And so what I've tried to do with Unbeatable Mind is create a truly Western and simplified and modern path toward the same level of integrated wholeness. I mean, yoga means to yoke the mind, the body, and the spirit. Unbeatable mind means to develop and, and integrate 
the physical, mental, emotional, intuitional, and spiritual aspects of your being. How are they different, right? One is just built from this culture through the lens of this person and a lot of other people who helped me because it's a living program, you know, um, combining the best of Western developmental psychology and therapy and physical fitness and Navy SEAL kickassery with the best of Eastern practices of meditation, visualization, breath work, et cetera. And it's extraordinarily effective. We call it vertical development as opposed to horizontal development. Horizontal development is like you learn a new skill and, and you're better at that skill, like in a seal shooting, jumping, diving, blowing things up. Vertical <laughs> development is you're developing your awareness and your consciousness and your compassion and your wholeness so that it, it, you grow up the stages of development, which means that then when you deploy those horizontal skills, you're, you're doing it from a different perspective, a different level, right? They said you might shoot as well as somebody else, but if you're vertically developed and integrated, you might not need to use the weapon. Yeah. Ideally, you wouldn't have to. Yeah, that's, that's the power of developing your intuition and, and your sense of who are you. And I think right. it's powerful what you were explaining before of detachment. And I think most of the people when they suffer, is, it has to do with identity. Where, where, what did you attach your identity to? And when you lose a position, a person, a, 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 you know, a home, a place or a job or a company and, and your identity was attached to that, then you suffer. And I think right. this detachment is such an important thing, but right. we are not taught that at all. Like you, you have a title and then in Spanish, for example, you are, it's like you are that thing. It's not right. that I work as that thing. It's you are. Right. And that's a big thing to say, because then when you don't have that, who are you? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I just, you know, you can just look at things as accomplishments and roles. Like we all have, think of all the different roles that we have, you know, and all the different accomplishments, but none of it is your real essential nature. Mm hmm. So that yeah. is actually one of the, the quickest paths. There's many paths to integration, but one of the quickest, most profound is the who am I practice. Ramana yeah. Maharshi was one of the proponents of that. Uh, Nizargada Maharaj is another one. So profound and simple. And it is just to basically keep your attention on that notion of who am I and to go through all those layers of identity until you recognize that none of the, at an ultimate level, and even when you think about us as like quantum beings, like we are not our job and we are not our cars or our million dollar bank accounts. We are not our beliefs. I mean, look around your brain at an energetic level and, and grab me a belief. <laughs> <laughs> not there. Totally, yeah. Right? Yeah. Grab me yeah. your identity. It's not there. Those are yeah, all based yeah. on memory. So that's all memory. Consciousness in this time-space continuum is all based on memory. Whereas when you do these meditative practices and you get closer and closer to your truth, your capital S truth, there's no, it's not based on memory. It's based on pure awareness and the experience, the experiencing itself, right? Yeah. So the three aspects of reality are, you know, one way to look at it is the knower, that's the Right, the, the, the personal address that you might call Mark or, or Cynthia, right? And then the known, which is the objective world. That's what we see or what we know. But the reality is at the, at the um, pure awareness level is there really is just the act of knowing. There's this constant, persistent knowing. And in that knowing moment, in the moment, the precise moment, the razor's edge of just knowing, there is no knower and there is no known. It's just knowing or experiencing. And time, you know, that's why they say time does not exist in the non-dual realm because there's no, you know, there's no, there's no words for it. It's just this, this persistent state of knowing and experiencing and expressing, creating and the identities drop off. Another a really beautiful kind of metaphor is an enlightened person, or the average person wakes up to the world. An enlightened person, the world wakes up to them. Yeah. In that moment of experiencing, they create the world. 
Every human being creates their world in that moment of experiencing. <laughs> and so if you want to create a better world, work on that. Yeah. Yeah. Don't misidentify with what's already been created or with yourself as an identity of, you know, being the creator. The creator, everything is just experiencing right here and right now. And you can, just like you can move the banks of a river, you can move the banks of your experience in this human life because we have everything stretched out in this timeline. And so if you're clear about where you want to end up in this timeline, then you can mold the banks of the river and the destination, and that's training your mind to make better decisions and habituating new behaviors. I think the amazing thing for me is that you have this deep knowledge and yet you can live in this world because I have friends who talk about spirituality and very spiritual, but they're living up here without yeah. the food in their they ground. haven't done the work of integration. Exactly. You can't exactly. leave your body behind. You can't leave your family behind. You, you're meant, I think this world needs enlightened people who are engaged. Exactly. Not yeah, pretending totally. to be enlightened and special, you know, that's like spiritual bypassing. You see a lot of that. Yeah. A lot of posers out there. Yeah, and, and it also doesn't help those who are trying to navigate life and they're struggling, you know, and they yeah. see you up there, but it's like, yeah, you're up there. Like yeah. I have it's a friend, like for example. Unopinium, you know, yeah. that's special. I can't get there. The reality yeah. is everybody has exactly what we're talking about. You just have to pay attention. Yeah. And look for it. Yeah. And, and you'll find it. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, no. I mean, it's. I it's I had, <laughs> no, I, I had a friend, or I have a friend, and um, he struggled with all this spiritual stuff because he had a dad who went to the military and had PTSD and, and he found meditation, but then he meditated all day long. So they didn't yeah. have a dad. So the mother took care of everything and he was happy in the sofa the whole day. <laughs> so, you know, so for him, meditation, all this stuff is like, no, because mm -hmm. it doesn't serve. And so it's yeah. beautiful to see how integrated you have it and, uh, yeah. and, and you can teach it, you know. There's a lot of um, obstacles to true integration or meditation. One of them is detachment. And earlier I used the word non-attachment. It's different than deta detaching from the world is basically, you know, that's an easy path, you know, and going to the monastery, that's the easy path because you, you're avoiding all of the relational challenges that you're meant to overcome in this lifetime, right? The hardest path is to stay in the world and develop that spiritual quality. So detachment is one of the obstacles. Um, bliss is another one, like also always chasing bliss or the white light slash bliss of like the Kundalini yogis. That's an obstacle. And it doesn't, you know, serve humanity for you to be in bliss walking around, you know, in drum circles all the time and then being negative and mean spirited, you know, when you're not doing that. Yeah. Ultimately, everything is vibrational quality. So what we're trying to do simultaneously while we seek that razor's edge of awareness beyond consciousness is also to cultivate the highest vibrational qualities that we can physically, mentally, emotionally, so that we, our very presence brings healing to the world. Yeah. Anyways. I can ask you questions for a long time, but I want to be respectful because we've already done an hour. So I, I could ask you like another half an hour. <laughs> I know. But I know you're very you probably busy said enough here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, you have not. We'll you, open I up mean... some more rabbit holes and we'll get stuck in one of them. <laughs> no, but it's uh, it's truly amazing to to hear about your wisdom and from your experience, because it's not from books, it's from a lifetime and from such different worlds and, and how much you're teaching and sharing. So I am deeply honored to have you here. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you just the last question. What is a change that you want to see in the world? Oh, I want to see everyone be the change that they want to be in the world. That's the change I want to see. I, I want to have see people stop outsourcing their, their minds to everybody. And when people start to take control of their minds and start to train themselves, then they will find freedom. And with that freedom um, at scale, 
you know, when we have millions and then hundreds of millions and then a billion people who are all evolving and ex opening up, opening their hearts, you know, to compassion and to inclusiveness and to love, you know, of all humanity, then you'll see this world change dramatically. You know, so I, like Gandhi used to say, be the change you want to see in the world. I say, be the change at scale. So you got to pay it forward. You got to, you know, share the message, right? We have the platforms now with social media and with like what we're doing, podcasts and, you know, everyone's got a book now, you know, so share it so that everyone can experience wholeness and, um, you know, the, the fruits of that work are healing. And, and you, and you want to see the world change, heal your mind, become whole and, and your world will change. So yeah. when we have a hundred billion or a hundred million and then a billion people whose worlds change, then the co the co-created world will change. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. That's the vision. It's going to happen. I can see it. It's already happened again. You know, it's just stretched out in the timeline. I am. I'm so happy that you see it so positive. You know, with everything that is happening, it's so great to hear you yeah. so positive. It's amazing. That's uh, yeah. vestiges of the a really negative period of human history just playing out, and we got about you know, eight or ten more years of it. So strap in, but don't lose hope, everybody. Yeah. You know, on the other side yeah. of this is a really beautiful place, and it's going to take all to create the world that we want against the negativity and the violence and also those who want to trap humanity in a menace verse or something you know what i mean that's not a different conversation though yeah yeah for sure that's uh yeah i'm also for engineer and i'm already like what <laughs> you know? I know. yeah well i really appreciate you having me in this conversation it's been a lot of fun yeah no thank you so much for for just going so deep and into some things that i'm very interested in and sharing this beautiful message and also the message of hope being in europe i think that everybody needs to hear that so mm -hmm. that's good and short, yes. yeah. i will keep following you so thank, <laughs> you. <laughs> thank you for your time mark and um, hopefully we can meet live sometime in the future if yep. you come to spain let me know I will. And same thing. If you come over to California, we've yes. got a great event, Unbeal Mind Experience in September and April of every year. So oh, love nice. to see you there. Yeah. yeah, it's it's challenging. <laughs> I understand. It is. Yeah. It yeah. Is. But uh, I will put, I'm not sure, I will make sure that I put all the information and everything so people can follow you and they can get all your books and seminars and everything in the notes and in the post. So so mm -hmm. they can benefit from all the things that you do. So, awesome. I appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much. Have a great uh, evening, I guess. Huh? Yes. Yes. It's dark here. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Really nice to meet you. I appreciate it. Great nice to meet you too. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.